So, 1 Corinthians, we're in Corinth, right? We started talking about this last week. We talked a little about the placement of this city, how it was near the Isthmus, and how it was important because they used to drag the boats across the Isthmus because they did not want to have to bring it all the way around because if they brought it all the way around, it was very dangerous and the boats would sink. And we started talking about what were the main things that Paul was writing about. He wrote about a number of different things. We're going to hit quite a few topics but the main thing he seemed to be addressing, addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 was what? It was unity, right? They were, I'm following Paul, I'm following Apollos, I follow Christ, so on and so forth. And they just were, seemed to be fighting with one another. And we'll see this theme sprinkled throughout, but he talks about some specific things today that I think we'll find enlightening. Last week, we really ended here on verse 17, but I wanted to read it again because 17 was really sort of a transition between what he was talking about in the first 16 verses, kind of transitioning into this next section. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize. And remember, he was talking about, I'm glad I didn't baptize anyone because you guys were kind of teaming up based on that, and I'm glad that I didn't baptize anyone. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul is really kind of does a little interesting thing here. The words he uses here are very polished, very good Greek, does a very nice job. So he's almost using polished words to say, well, the polishing isn't what matter. And, and this is what I read one commentator who said about this. I thought it was very meaningful. He's not saying this gives all preachers a license to just do a bad job. Like as long as you get the gospel out by the end, all is well, and it doesn't matter what you sort of did in between, right? We want to do the best that we can. And Paul did a good work in his writing. But what he's saying is, the writing or the polish or the way that you present is not the point, right? If, if you get caught up in that too much, you've really missed what you're really after. Also, we go on to verse 18. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. We talk a number of things, we're going to talk a number of times in the rest of this chapter about you know, wisdom and folly and so on and so forth. And let me just give you a little bit of background of what was going on in that time. So they had these traveling philosophers back then, and they were called sophists. And as a matter of fact, there were probably as many, as many as 50 different philosophical movements going on at the time, each having a different idea about the, what the Bible said about, you know, how God worked or different ideas about how, you know, the creation happened or different ideas on how, what happened after you die. So there's all these different people traveling around, speaking, giving ideas on what they believed about philosophy. It's, it kind of reminds me of like the traveling preachers, right? We used to have traveling preachers in the United States. The Methodists were big on this at a certain time in our history, and they traveled from town to town, and they would preach. Well, this is kind of like what they would do, except it wasn't preaching, it wasn't Christianity, it was just these different ideas about philosophy. We'll be talking about this a number of times. But as we go through, I'd like you to think about this as well. It says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. A lot of people have said a lot of the things about the Bible are folly. They're foolish. We've seen it throughout human history. You know, think of Rudolf Bultmann, if you've heard of him. He was a German. I assume I'm pronouncing his name right. I've heard it said it many times. I believe I remember. But he came up with his own version of the Bible in which he demythologized 
the Bible. He took out the things that he thought were myths. He took out textual criticism. Of course, Thomas Jefferson had his own version of the Bible as well, in which he thought some of the things were silly. They were folly. And we've had this happen throughout history of the Bible. Verse 19, it says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. He quotes a passage in Isaiah to say, this wisdom, this Greek philosophy is meaningless. Go on to verse 20. He says, where is the one who is wise? This is probably a Greek philosopher. Where is the scribe? This would be an expert in Jewish law. Where has the debater of this age, where is the debater of this age? And this is probably the sophist I mentioned earlier. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? It reminds me when I think about God making foolish the wisdom of the world and the places that the wisdom of the world take us sometimes. And not all of these things are bad and some of them have kind of their merits or whatever, but I think of going to philosophy class. So you got to realize my philosophy classes I've taken weren't at secular institutions. They were at Christian schools, so it's not like we were hardcore in any of these. But we would study like deconstructionism. Have you ever heard the term like deconstructionism? It's often associated with postmodernism, things like that. Like, you try to read the definition of reconstructionism. It's like, you can barely even figure it out. But they've, they, they decided, like, well, you know, if you say a word, that word doesn't have inherent meaning in and of itself. It, it means something because the people hearing it associate it with something else, and that gives the word meaning. So therefore, the meaning of that word is kind of it's not really static, it's dynamic, it's always moving depending on what you're hearing. So therefore, if we cross cultures too much and we use the same words, we can't possibly understand what each other's saying. And so everything's got to be really local. And then they kind of even deconstruct that a little bit more. And like by the end, you know what pretty much happens? You're like, wait a second. The words I am reading to, is, as I am learning that I cannot possibly understand the words I am reading I mean, it just it, it kind of takes you into nothingness, and it doesn't meet with practical life. Never meets with engineers can't live by deconstructionism. If they went and grabbed their engineering book and said, "How do I build a bridge?" and they say, "Well, I just can't possibly, you know, trust the, you know, I don't know this author. I can't fully believe what he's saying. I can't fully like, hey, we're, it doesn't work. It's not real life, right? The wisdom of the world. We've come up with so many things that are great. We've improved in a lot of ways." But other times it just seems like we just are spinning our wheels. Verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through folly of what we preach to save those who we believe. So God chooses to use what other people would see as folly to show his wisdom. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks demand wisdom. We see in Mark 8, 11, and 12, this probably is familiar to some of you. It says, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given in this generation. The Jews always wanted proof. They wanted a physical sign. But what did the Greeks want? They want wisdom. So 
Science has changed. So in the Greek times, and I, I'm probably painting, uh, painting with a broad brush if you're an expert on Greek history. I'm sorry, I'm probably not hitting all the nuance. But Greek science, in a lot of times, worked a little bit more like this. You didn't actually test things. You just thought about it a lot. But you didn't actually try it. So that's the beauty of the scientific method, right? You come up with theory, you try it. It almost surely never works the way you think it's going to. You change your theory, you try it again. You're about guaranteed it's still not working. You try it again, try to get it. That's the scientific method. Well, the Greeks didn't really try it. They just thought about it a lot. And of course, a lot of Greek philosophers were wealthy. They didn't have to have jobs. That really helps to be able to sit around and think about philosophy all day. So the Greeks, they sought wisdom. The people, there were, I mentioned some, but they're also Stoics and Epicureans. They gave big discourses on the natures of God, and they would talk, and they would debate, and they would try to find truth through philosophy, through wisdom. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Uh, why, would, why would you ever follow a guy who was crucified? He was a loser, right? He's a loser. Sometimes we think, you know, we, we want to back winners, winners. Christ is a loser. You know, I'm a Kentucky basketball fan. You know why I'm a Kentucky basketball fan? I'm a Nebraska fan too. That's where I'm from. I cheer for Nebraska. But we were, we're always, we've always kind of been bad at basketball. And so when the tournament came, I didn't have anyone to cheer for. So I'm just a kid. You know, I'm, I, I think I came by this honestly. So I wanted someone to cheer for. So who do I pick? Well, at that time, in a in very kind of time I could be easily influenced, the Kentucky Wildcats, coached by Rick Patino. The cardiac cats, right? They press, 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 press. They were the number one rated seed, that rated team. They're the number one seed, and they won the NCAA tournament the year I watched them. I was like, that's my favorite team. Boom, I am cheering for Kentucky. And irrationally, I've been cheering for Kentucky ever since. Why? Why did I pick them? They're winners. They're winners. And that's so often how we do things, right? Who's winning? That's the team I want to be on. Was Christ a winner? I don't, I don't think so. Not, not in the world's eyes. He is, of course, the ultimate winner. But in the world's eyes, he certainly wasn't. And if we think about what it says in Deuteronomy 21, 23, it says, His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance. Why is Christ's death on the cross a stumbling block? They considered him cursed. Of course, the Gentiles, he's just crucified the Romans. He disobeyed Roman law, and they killed him. Verse 24, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. You know, we see here as he goes through these verses, and I should have pointed out earlier, he's really kind of shifting the people's thoughts. See, this is how they were thinking. 
we're all in this church together, but I'm of Paul, and I'm Paul, so you know, I, we're in these different groups, right? They kind of separated in these different groups. Paul talks about two groups, just two groups, and who are these groups? The Christians and those who are not Christians. But to those who are called, to the Christians, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. To those who are not Christians, what is the cross? It's foolish, it's stupid, it's silly. There's really only two groups. And so often we want, we want to parse ourselves up. And, and in, in the Corinthian church, even in their church, they were, they were dividing themselves up. There's only really two groups. Those on their way to heaven, those serving Christ, those who are not. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Likely what was going on in the Corinthian church is, is they started listening to these different wise men, these philosophers. They probably had some underlining presuppositions based on them, and they were arguing about them. And they were developing in groups, and some of it may have had to do with class or culture or whether they were Greek or Roman, but, but they were using man's wisdom. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Now, this is interesting. I read some stuff about this this week that I found really interesting. It says, not many of you were. There's really not a good verb in the Greek that's provided. So they kind of said were like past tense. But some translations actually go more like not many are wise. Not many are wise. Not talking about the Corinthian church specifically, but just in general. Not many are wise according to worldly standards. Not many. So he's not, he's not saying, well, no, no, not very many of you in the church were wise, and not many of you were powerful, not many of you were. He's saying there just aren't very many wise people, powerful people, people of noble birth. And these terms he uses are terms of social elite, right? There can only be so many of the social elite. There's no elite if there's very many. Like, if we're all elite, then no one's elite, right? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. I, I read an article this week about a, a course a basketball player and made me think of this. He's six foot one, so a couple inches shorter than me, 170 pounds. It's like 40 pounds lighter than me. The little guy. When he went to college, he had one division two scholarship. One division two scholarship. That was it. Only one school, division two, offered a scholarship. You know what he plays for now? The Atlanta Hawks plays in the NBA. And of course, it's a great story to read, right? It's a great story to read. It's great to see the weak beat the strong sometimes, isn't it? The David and Goliath. And this is how Christ chose to use the death on the cross, the weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world 
even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. When the sophists would come and they would speak, they'd often boast how great they are. Oh, I'm the, I'm the wisest, I'm the smartest, listen to my philosophy, I know what I'm doing. Right? Boasting in our society, oh, it's, it's big, man. It's big. Look at how great, look, oh, man, look how big the crowd is. Look how big the crowd is. Big. It's big. Are you hearing an interview with an athlete? Oh, look, oh, man, I'm, I, I think I'm the best player ever. I think I'm the best. I'm the best. And I realize there's a sense of self-confidence one needs, but we as believers, are we to be, are we to be boasters? Tell everyone how great we are? Tell everyone how much, we, how much we succeed. We all do it. We all fall into it. My dad always said it's the disease that makes everybody sick except the one that has it. That's what my dad told me. When I was in junior high, I was bigger than everybody else, and so I was more successful at sports than I should have been once everybody caught up with me and it reality struck. But I was big back then, and I was just really full of myself. Dad, man, he's one day he's rebounding for me. He's shooting. I was practicing. He just... So you got the disease that makes everybody sick but the ones that have it. You know. So often we boast. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to his wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, God set it up so beautifully. What credit can we take for the great things we do for him? None, right? What are we without Christ? What are we without Christ? Nothing. What do we have to brag about? What do we have to say we've done is so great? He set up the system in the only way that makes sense. Who's the only one? Worthy of honor, worthy of glory. Christ, Christ. He's the only one worthy of it. He's the only one that deserves it. And so now, even when we feel like we've done something great, who has given us the power? Who has given us the ability to do it? Who is working through us? It's Christ. It's Christ alone. And the people of Corinth, they had forgotten this. They had moved to other philosophies, other ideas, and they put them above, and they divided them. And they no longer were able to come together and unite in Christ. And that's what we need to do. So often I, when I've thought about this passage, I always thought like, oh, the foolishness of the people of this world, they're the idiots, they're, they do it, and the Christians, we're, we're getting it right all the time. And while... Maybe that's true to some degree. What's the context of this passage? They're fighting with one another because they are taking in the wisdom of the world, because they are not following Christ. This is not a, look how stupid all the non-Christians are. This is a, hey, we need to look at ourselves. When do we take in the ideas of the world and let them affect us? We not only need to be telling people that it's Christ alone, we need to be looking at ourselves and saying, 
you know, in Christ alone. We're going to sing this song. Of course, it's entitled, In Christ Alone. I implore you to think as we sing the song about how so often we get pushed in, to and fro by wisdom, by ideas in the world. And some, it's not all bad. We live in the world. You can't, you can't ignore it all. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But sometimes we just let ourselves float away and we lose our focus from Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just pray so much that as we prepare our hearts to sing this song, that we would truly live our life knowing that you are our only hope, that you are the only way we can boast. You are the only thing worth living. All, all the, the money we make, any success we have in, in whatever, what does it matter at all? It all burns, as we say, and anything of lasting value is because of what Christ has done in us. We thank you. Thank you for sending your son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.